Good morning again, church family. So we uh, have been going through this summer uh, the Gospel of Luke uh, pretty regularly, and so uh, we are continuing through that uh, this morning. Uh, we come to uh, a sermon called Fear Not, an answer to anxiety. Uh, and just the word anxiety caused some of you to get anxious. I know you, I know you did. You, you kind of tensed up just a little bit. Some of you said, oh, me. Some of you elbowed some of your spouses, <laughs> right? Some of you got anxiety just from the title slide. Anxiety is something that all of us have felt from time to time, but for some people, uh, it's a way of life. And so I was reading some of the research on anxiety just to kind of wrap my mind around uh, this topic. Uh, and uh, there is, according to a recent study that studied anxiety in adults between 2008 and 2018, uh, anxiety is on the increase in all adults, uh, 18 to 50, but the largest increase was in young adults from 18 to 25. Young adults, 18 to 25. And so what they saw in this study was there was no noticeable difference between men and women, no noticeable difference between across racial and ethnic lines, across different income levels. Uh, the study was consistent that anxiety is on the rise in all various income levels, various ethnicities, male, female, it is on the rise for those under 50. Now, this study is consistent with other studies concerning things like clinical depression. And so we know scientifically when anxiety increases, it has a negative effect on the body and the mind. Lack of sleep, poor sleep, increased stress, and poor general health are all results attributed to an increased anxiety. Here's the deal. People are getting more and more anxious, it is, especially those who are coming into adulthood. It is, uh, they, they have figured out that people are becoming more and more anxious. Now, the reasons for that are multifaceted and they're very complex and really beyond the scope of our time this morning. So I don't want us to necessarily chase the why this morning, but rather dig into the what. What is the root of anxiety? What, 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 is, what is at the heart of anxiety? And furthermore, and more importantly for us, what does that say about our relationship with God? So of all, all questions like this, the first place we go to is Scripture. We open the Bible and say, what does God say about anxiety? And specifically this morning, we're going to ask, what did Jesus teach his disciples about anxiety? And so we find this instruction uh, on anxiety in a time that he had used a question from the crowd to launch into teaching his disciples. You'll, you'll be reminded of this question. We preached about it last year. Someone from the crowd stood up and said, teacher, tell my brother to divide an inheritance with me, right? Uh, and so Jesus, uh, we saw in the Uncommon series last year, not only refuses to engage in that situation as arbiter, uh, but he says, he takes the opportunity to warn against the dangers of covetousness. And he shares that parable. Uh, we talk about the rich fool who had uh, more than he could anticipate in prophets so he built bigger barns and filled them up and said what am I going to do with all this stuff I'm going to rest and be easy and God said you fool tonight your soul is required of you and so he had stored up all of this stuff and God said tonight you're going to die and leave all of that stuff for someone else and so right after that parable the Bible says he turned to his disciples and he began teaching them he says therefore I tell you Remember, whenever Jesus says therefore he's Tying back to what he says, because you have to watch out for covetousness, because of the reality that you can't take any of it with you, therefore, 
I tell you, we're going to pick up right in the middle of his instruction, verse 32 of chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 12. We're going to pick up in verse 32. This is kind of right in the of Jesus' teaching. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where there no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is there will your heart be also. So this, this is the totality of our scripture this morning. This little passage that Jesus says, listen, don't be afraid. And then he goes to talking about it is the Father's good pleasure and uh, the fact that we will need to sell what we have provide for needy. And he goes on and we'll deal, dig into all that this morning. But I wanted to see uh, where this comes from. Uh, the idea of fear not uh, is the Greek word where we get our English word phobia, to be frightened. He says, don't, don't be scared, right? Don't be frightened. And it's interesting to start a paragraph there because we have to ask the question, what is Jesus telling them not to fear? What is it that they might be frightened by? Which drives us back to where Jesus has been. And so take your finger there on Luke 12, 32 and trace back up uh, to uh, verse 22 in the same chapter. So trace back up to 22. This is what Jesus says. And he said to his disciples, and this is right after the parable, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you'll put on. And so there's where Jesus starts with anxiety. And if you, you take your finger and you trace back down to a verse 28, towards the end of that verse we find this. O you of little faith, do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek the kingdom, and these things will be added to you. That brings us right back up to fear not. So Jesus says, don't be anxious. You have little faith. Trust. Don't seek those things. Fear not. What I think is interesting here is Jesus cuts right to the heart of the problem with our anxiety over material possessions. He's been talking about anxiety, don't be anxious, but now he says, listen, what it really comes down to is fear, right? As only God can, he diagnoses their anxiety about the things that they have is not really anxiety, it is fear. So he says, don't be afraid. Now, I know this is an oversimplification, so uh, you don't need to email me and tell me that I didn't get it right, but listen, it's for our purposes today, this formula is helpful, okay? There's the first part of the formula. Anxiety is a symptom of fear. So if you're taking notes, I want you to write that down, and there's going to be a second part later, but anxiety is a symptom of fear. Whenever we look at what Jesus says, he's saying, listen, your anxiety, he doesn't say just not be anxious. He says, listen, stop being afraid. Stop being anxious, which means stop being afraid. And I want to take just a moment to take it aside because we're talking about something, anxiety, that can be a clinical problem. 
If you have clinical anxiety, you've been diagnosed, I want you to hear me. The answer for you this morning is not simply just to stop, right? Stop, stop being anxious. Stop being fearful. Uh, the, we know scientifically that things can develop in the developmental stages of a person's life that makes them prone to anxiety and to fear and the pathways of their mind. So listen, if you have been clinically diagnosed, if you have sought medicine to help with your anxiety, listen, as someone who has struggled with clinically diagnosed depression, medicine is not to be looked at like a lack of maturity or faith as some traditions do. It is a common grace that God gave us. And so listen, if you're struggling with, with clinical anxiety, and it, it is, I want you to hear me. The answer is not as simple as stop it, but we shouldn't negate the fact that the Bible says that we can have our minds transformed by the renewing of the, the word. That we can renew our minds. That God can work and create new pathways and new thought processes. We don't have to stay bound to sinful thought processes and sinful ways of living. We don't have to stay bound to that. And so I want you to hear me that I am not minimizing that level of anxiety, but I'm also telling you to look to Jesus. By addressing that, let's lay that aside, because most of us, by and large, anxiety and fear is something we've allowed into our minds. We've allowed it into our lives. We have cultivated it. We have fed it. It is a choice, and we are getting more and more anxious as time goes on. And so listen, I want to turn now to what Jesus says about anxiety. The first thing we find is loving reassurance. If you're taking notes, this is the first thing we're going to look at, loving reassurance. And I love that Jesus starts here. He says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And so whenever the Bible says fear not, uh, it's followed by a reassurance of why you shouldn't be afraid, right? Like when Gabriel appeared to Mary, when, whenever an angel appears and says, fear not, when, it's always followed by a reassurance of why not to be afraid. And Jesus follows that same pattern here in a very personal, loving, and gentle way. He says, fear not. And I think the idea of little here is not a derogatory sense, as little in power or statue. I think it's an endearing term. He says, fear not, little Listen, listen, look up here. He says, little band of men and women who have chosen to follow me. Look up here. Do not be afraid. There's this moment, I think, of tenderness where Jesus says, listen, don't be anxious. And then he gets to this part where he says, listen, you don't have to be afraid. Like The, the root of what is causing your anxiety is that you're, you're fearful. And I want you to know that, listen, you don't have to be afraid, right? There's a reassurance here. But Jesus goes beyond that. And, and listen, he gives us this foundational truth in response to our largely irrational fear of not having what we need in this life. And so the reason I say it's irrational because Jesus has walked us through all of these things that, that should give us confidence and dispel fear. Listen to what all, he's already said in Luke 12, 24. You don't have to turn there, but if it's uh, available to you, you can follow along. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? So the first truth he says is, listen, you are more valuable to God than the birds, and yet you see how in his creation he takes care of them, right? And then again, he goes in Luke 12, 27, consider the lilies. 
how they grow. They neither tool nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? He says again, you are more valuable to God. And this truth, these truths, answer the question, what if God doesn't care about me, right? What if, what if God doesn't care about me? Jesus says, look at the birds. They don't toil or sow. They don't have seasons. They don't, they don't work according to that, and yet God cares for them. How much more valuable are you than they? He says, look at the grass, how beautiful. Look at the way that God designed the flowers to bloom and to be beautiful and all the intricate details that we see in that field of study how much more valuable are you so if your fear is rooted in what if God doesn't care Jesus says listen it's in his heart he you are valuable to God he continues on in Luke 29 or 12 29 and do not seek what you're to eat and what you're to drink or be worried for all the nations of the world seek after these things and your father knows that you need them that is he is aware of your need. This answers the question, what if he doesn't know, right? Well, maybe he cares about me, but what if he doesn't know what I need? Jesus says, you don't have to worry about that. It's in his mind. It's on his heart. You're valuable to him. It's in his mind. He's aware of it. He created you. How much better does he know what you need than what you think you need, right? He knows what you need. You don't have to seek at it. He's aware of it. And then Finally, he says in Luke 12, 31, instead, seek the kingdom and these things will be added to you. He will take care of you. And this answers a question. What if he doesn't come through? Right. What if he what if he cares about me? What if he knows what I need, but then he just doesn't come through? Right. Jesus says. It's in his nature to come through. It's who he is. You seek the kingdom and he will add these things to you, right? Like you don't have to worry about whether he cares for you, whether he knows what you need or whether he'll come through. Jesus has already systematically laid those things before us. And so listen, at this point, anything left, I think, is, is, is irrational because Jesus now points to the identity of the one who wants to give these things to us. He says, fear not, little flock, it is your father." takes us back to the, the Lord's Prayer, doesn't it? When we, we, we talked about our Father and how revolutionary that was, that Jesus took a, a God that we weren't, we weren't even allowed to say his name or to write it out of reverence, and he said, listen, that God is your Father. You can go to him like a father. He loves you like a father. You're right. He, he, and so here he says again, your Father. He calls his disciples close, and he says again, listen, God is your father. There is no reason to fear. Not only will he give you the good gift of the Holy Spirit, but he will not neglect your physical needs either. So as we walk through that, maybe there's still a little bit of fear, anxiety. If I quit pursuing the things of the world, if I quit seeking the things that I need, what if? What if I don't have enough, right? What if no more comes tomorrow? What if God forgets about me? 
what if I upset him and he no longer wants to care for me? Like, right? There's still this level for some people of anxiety and fear, and, and, and we need to, to make sure we take care of ourselves. But listen, Jesus lovingly reassures us, it is your Father's good pleasure. Like, stop for a minute and just think about that. Like, more than Jesus, God valuing his creation— more than he knows what you need, more than he will provide it based on just who he is, it is his good pleasure to do so. Literally takes pleasure in. God is willing and wanting to care for his people. And like this changes everything for me. Like as I was reading this and I was studying it, when I got to this point where I realized that Jesus was saying God took pleasure and delighted in taking care of his creation, I thought that changes everything. Think about this, when someone wants to give you a gift and you're hesitant to receive it you say right no thanks i'm okay or i'm all right right you don't i don't i don't want to i'm okay and maybe they persist for you to take it and you say really uh, thank you but i couldn't possibly take that from you what is the one thing they usually say that ends the back and forth i want to give it to you right like don't don't rob me from this i want to give it to you what they're trying to make you understand is it it is their delight to share what they have for you and listen that usually ends the conversation right God says, in this, not only do I have it, not only do you need it, but I want to give it to you. What that, that says is this is beyond a sense of obligation. This is beyond a simple goodwill. It is his desire to share with you and to give you from what he has. God provides for his children because he wants to. And Jesus seems to imply more than that, it brings him pleasure to do so. Now we get this, right? Like, giving a gift to someone that we care about and love that they need like we get what that feels like to to meet a need because we love someone and we want to do it there's delight in that there's joy in that and it's in those moments that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it is more blessed to give than to receive And Jesus says in that moment when we are giving because it brings us delight and for no other reason we are closer to the heart of the Father than we could possibly know. It is his good pleasure to care for you. If you get nothing else today, I want you to take that home. God's good pleasure is to take care of you. You don't have to fear. You don't have to be frightened. That is the loving reassurance that Jesus gave his disciples. Listen, he said, listen God loves you, and he wants to care for you as his children. And so far, we've been talking about what we wear and what we eat, but Jesus digs deeper, and he says, Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The implication, of course, is if he will gladly give you the kingdom— then why would we worry about the lesser things of the earth, what we wear and what we eat? If God wants to give you something as valuable as the kingdom, is there anything greater than that? And like we are reassured that if we seek the kingdom in verse 31, rather than seeking the things of the world, not only will God take care of our needs, he will give us that greater thing that we seek. If you seek the kingdom, he'll give it to you. And here, Jesus says it's his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And so just for a moment, we have to ask the question, what is the kingdom? It's the power and presence of God. 
Like that, that is the kingdom. When the New Testament talks about the kingdom of God is here, it's active, it is the power and presence of God, both immediately felt here and ultimately realized when God creates a new heaven and a new earth and draws us into eternal fellowship with him and that we're constantly surrounded by his power and his presence. But until then, the kingdom is the way we experience his power and presence. Listen, it is the Holy Spirit Jesus promised the Father would give in our study last week. It is God giving himself to men and women who do not deserve it. To receive the kingdom is to receive acceptance from God through Christ. It is to be welcomed into the familial care of the kingdom of heaven. It is to receive the power and authority to be ambassadors for the kingdom of heaven. This is what God delights in giving his people. This is like amazing, right? Like God doesn't just give you what you need, what to wear or what to eat. Like God brings you and gives you the authority to proclaim the kingdom of God. He gives you the power to do so. He gives you his presence. He gives you acceptance through Christ Jesus. He, he imputes God's righteousness, Christ's righteousness on you. Like he gives you the thing that is more important than all other things. Jesus says, what are you afraid of about what you're going to eat or what you're going to put on? God is willing to give you the kingdom if you'll seek it. Like, there's no reason to fear. And not only that, listen, he delights in it. He is not giving half-heartedly. He doesn't withhold. He doesn't give begrudgingly. Like, he gives because it brings him delight. So what are you afraid of? Jesus says, what are you, what are you anxious about? Fear not, little flock, because it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So the second thing we see after Jesus and this loving reassurance that he provides us is what is to be our reasonable response. If God gives this way and God delights in giving this way, how should I respond? How should the disciples respond to this truth? Jesus says in verse 33, sell your possessions, give to the needy, Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. If God values you, if he cares about you, if he knows exactly what you need and he delights in giving it, then you don't need to hold on to your possessions or worry about whether you have enough. So Jesus says, so sell it. Now you may be thinking that doesn't sound reasonable at all. I thought you said reasonable response. Jesus says, sell your possessions. And possessions here commonly being defined as your goods, your wealth, your property. Like, our first instinct is try and lessen the demand of this command, right? Like, when we read it, our first instinct is to go, okay, he didn't mean that, right? We try to soften it. We try to say, well, wh what, could he, what could he mean? But we have to deal justly with the text. Jesus uses the present active imperative. He says, you sell your stuff. No way around it. So what is he saying here? Well, rather than soften it, let's try to put it in context. Jesus essentially tells them to liquidate, but he doesn't tell them to do it for no purpose. He ties his command with another. He says, sell your possessions and give to the needy those who need mercy, and those that deserve pity. That is the needy. Give to the needy. Now, this is a consistent message of the New Testament. 
If you're a student of scripture, this is not the first time you've heard this. I mean, I'm just going to give you a few this morning that, that go before Jesus's ministry and after Jesus's earthly ministry. Uh, John, the Baptist, comes onto the scene and he says, and the crowds, they're hearing him preach repentance in the kingdom of heaven. And they say, what do we need to do, John? This is what John says. If you have two tunics, give one to someone who doesn't have one. If you have food, do likewise. John's message of what repentance and faithfulness in the kingdom of heaven looked like was to take what you had, and once you had enough, give the rest of it away. Like that was revolutionary. And then Jesus comes and says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. And then after his ministry, two disciples continue preaching the same message. 1 John 3, if you're taking notes, you can write that down. 1 John 3, John says this. This is the disciple Jesus loved, writing later in his life, still preaching the same message. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. John says, if you have what they need and you don't give it to them, how could God's love abide in your heart? How could you say you had felt the love of God if you were not moved to take care of someone in need? James 2, Jesus' half-brother says in James 2, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed, and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? The consistent message in the kingdom of God is that you, if you have more than enough, make sure that those around you in need have enough. Like, we can't shrink back from that command. We can't lessen it. We can't rationalize it away. Jesus says, John taught, John the apostle taught, James emphasized, if you have more than enough and someone has a need, share. Can't make it go away. We might like to. We might like to say, well, they, what, what if they don't deserve it, right? What if they're going to squander it? What if they're going to sell my cloak at the pawn shop? Jesus says, if you have to, give it away. If you have more than enough, take care of it. Meet the need. And the reason that we want to do this is because John says, if we close our heart off to a brother or sister, how can we even claim to have the love of God in us? We should be motivated. We talked about this in Bible study this morning. The love of God that has been bestowed on us ought to flow out of us. We ought to love our neighbors like this. But listen, this is what I love here. John didn't give any kind of rational. He just said, do it. John the apostle says, listen, God's love, I would, I would question whether or not you were God's. James says, what good is it? But Jesus doesn't just give us the command. He provides motivation to do so. He says, in emptying your money bags here to care for the needy, you are actually producing better money bags in Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, right? With a treasure in heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Like Jesus gives us motivation 
to live this way. A treasure that Jesus says is longer lasting, more stable, theft proof, and incorruptible. There's a saying that you can't take it with you when you die, right? That hearses don't have trailer hitches, right? There's no taking it with you. But Jesus says you can send it on ahead. You can invest in such a way that you are storing a, a treasure in heaven and not hoarding one that you leave behind. Jesus says we can actually use the resources that God has given us this side of heaven to invest in an eternal treasure. So we come back to this. For the disciple of Christ, this command is reasonable on at least two fronts. One, if God cares for you and will unwaveringly take care of your daily needs, then why wouldn't you use what you had that was above and beyond that to be the vessel he uses to provide for others and need around you? Why wouldn't you? If you trust that God is a good father, that God is a providing father, that God wants to care for you and provide your needs and that he has promised to do so, why wouldn't I take any excess and help someone else around me be taken care of and two why would you hoard your possessions here where they will fail rot and ultimately get left behind when jesus says we can invest in a treasure that cannot fail be devalued or taken from us in this past couple of years people have lost a fortune in their investments because the money the market is fickle unsteady but Jesus says we can invest in something that will not fail so the question is reasonable absolutely easy not at all I didn't say it was easy I said it was reasonable when you think about what God the Father has given and bestowed on you in the kingdom and what he continues to do in your life it is the most reasonable thing to open your hands and take care of others But when we think about this, we can find ourselves figuratively clenching in fear around our stuff, right? Like, gosh, the pastor's talking about my stuff. The pastor's gotten into my my savings now. He's talking about the things that I've hoarded, and we start to, to close our hands off. Maybe we get angry. I can't believe he's talking about this. Maybe he should just preach the gospel, right? Jesus says that that's the very picture of anxiety. That's the very picture of anxiety, clutching what we have in fear that it may run out, that it may not be enough, that we may not get any more, which is what he has consistently been calling us to abandon, that mentality, by lovingly reassuring us that the Father values us, that he cares for us, that he wants to provide for us, that he finds delight in it. So listen, he says, relax, don't fear, don't be afraid, open your hands, and your heart to care for those around you, confident and trusting that if you seek the kingdom, God will meet your needs. And then he encourages us, not only that, can we do that, not only should we do that, but in doing so, we're actually providing ourselves with a much better treasure than anything we could gain this side of heaven. Like, Jesus is encouraging us not just to stop being afraid, but he says you have no reason to be afraid. You have no reason to be anxious about anything. You have a loving father that's going to take care of you. And as a matter of fact, if you use what he's given you, you can actually invest in a treasure that is incorruptible and will never fail and no one can steal it from you and it will never lose value. God has given you things to invest in his kingdom to produce more things. Like this is an amazing strategy. But I wish, and we wish sometimes Jesus would have stopped there. 
like. It's enough to tell me not to worry. It's enough to tell me to sell my stuff. But now he's going to give us a difficult truth. The third thing we see after Jesus' loving reassurance and our reasonable response is an alarming reality. As Jesus works his way through this and kind of finishes this teaching, he says, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. For is a, is a very short word, but it's so powerful. Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That word is a small but powerful transition as Jesus gets to the heart of the issue of anxiety. The word there could be translated as seeing that. Jesus says, sell your stuff and give to the needy, and in doing so you'll be storing up a treasure in heaven. And then he closes with this thought, seeing that where your treasure is reveals where your heart is as well. Now, treasure here is not so much the what, but the where you store it. The, the word here is, is a treasury or um, a storehouse where you deposit your treasures. This is alarming because if we were to, if we were to take a hard look at where we were making regular deposits, we may be forced to admit that our hearts may not be in the right place. How much are we sending on ahead and how much are we investing in things that ultimately don't matter? Jesus says what that reveals about us is where our hearts are, where our affections are. But more than that, it reveals where our trust is. Are we trusting that God can and will care for us? Or do we feel like we have to hoard and amass stuff to take care of ourselves? Do we feel God is going to take care of our children, or is it up to us to make sure they have enough stuff? Do we ultimately treasure the kingdom of God or setting up our own little kingdoms? Jesus wants to set us free from that because ultimately it's going to disappoint you. You can amass all the money in the world. You can be the most successful and have the biggest bank account. And ultimately, it is going to disappoint you. Because you're going to step out of this life into eternity, and you're not going to take a cent with you. And if you've sent nothing forward, there's nothing waiting for you. Jesus says, don't, don't fear. Don't be anxious. Don't worry about what is this side of heaven. Look to your future. Where is your trust? C.S. Lewis sums it up this way in Mere Christianity. He says, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. Because there's nothing here for you. And if you aim at it, you miss everything God wants you for. But he tells us here, if we will aim at heaven, God will throw in the things that we need. They're that and they're, they're, they're minuscule compared to what he wants to give us. And so here's the question this morning. What are you aiming at? What is the aim of your life? When you think about the difficulties of the future, of the uncertainty of tomorrow, 
do you rest in the assurance that God loves you, values you, and wants to take care of you? Or does your mind immediately go to, what have I got stored up? How can I get some more? And how will it get me through? Because ultimately that reveals where your trust is. You're either trusting in God to take care of you or trusting in yourself to take care of yourself. And listen, where your security for tomorrow is reveals a lot about where your heart is. Which brings us back to the formula we started this morning. Anxiety is a symptom of fear. We finished that this morning with, and fear is a symptom of a lack of trust. When we really get to the root of what Jesus is saying, is if you're anxious, there's a root of fear there. And if you're fearful, listen, you're not really trusting. This is the alarming reality Jesus paints for us in this instruction. But listen, rather than potentially hanging your head in shame this morning or getting mad that the pastor talked about your money, think about how helpful this formula is as a diagnostic tool when we're feeling anxious. If anxiety is rooted in fear, what am I afraid of in this moment that's causing me to be anxious? What am I fearful of? And if, fearful is, if fearfulness is a, finds its root in a lack of trust, what does this fear say about my trust in God? And having identified where I am lacking trust, what biblical truth or promise directly speaks to this fear? It gives you a formula, right? If I'm anxious, what am I scared of? And if I'm scared of, where am I lacking trust? If I'm lacking trust, where can I go to Scripture to find encouragement and the promises of God that encourage, right? We don't have to live in anxiety and fear. Jesus gave us the biggest reason because God loves us and he values us and he cares for us and he's a good father and we don't have to feel anxious. But as we work our way through this, I want to give you that, that tool in it to work through this. And here's what I want to close this morning. In addition to Jesus' encouragement this morning, let me share what the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the church at Rome. I want want to kind of finish with this. Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spun but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That puts the punctuation on what we've been talking about this morning. If you believe that God gave you his one and only son to die for your sins, then why would you worry about something as trivial as what you're going to wear, what you're going to eat, right? God already gave you his best. Why would he withhold anything other good thing from you? Beloved, if God so loved you that he gave his only son and you believe that and you trust him for your everlasting eternal life, then why would you ever be anxious about what tomorrow brings? Let's pray.